And we're back for another episode of Startup Hustle, a podcast for entrepreneurs by entrepreneurs. If you want to start, own, or build a business, then you're in the right place. We bring you the real truth about what it's like to take something from concept to launch, from growth, innovation, experience, failing, or winning big, we've got you covered. So let's get down to business with another episode of Startup Hustle, brought to you by Fullscale.io. And we're back for another episode of the Startup Hustle. This is your host today, Matt Watson. Very excited to be joined with Mr. Mike Stimple today and his company, Inspire. He's done a whole lot of things in his career, and we'll talk all about it, but we're primarily going to talk about being an entrepreneur today and um, trying to be even more entrepreneurial. So excited to talk all about that. But before we get started, today's episode of Startup Hustle is powered by FullScale.io. Hiring software developers is difficult. FullScale can help you build a software team quickly and affordably and has the platform to help you manage that team. Visit FullScale.io to learn more. Mike, welcome to the show, man. I, I love nothing more than talking about entrepreneurship. So excited for the conversation today. Well, I've been an entrepreneur my whole life, so I probably have a lot to say. <laughs> well, tell, tell us a little about your journey. Before we got started here, you mentioned, uh, it made it sound like you were, I don't know, were you a professional athlete? You've been an artist, you entrepreneur, and a lot, a lot of different things. Tell us, tell us about your background. I have the most eclectic background, and I think that just leads me to being uh, on the pathway to success I've been on. Uh, let me start at the beginning. I, I'm ex-military. Um, I joined the Army straight out of high school. I was a combat medic. Um, enlisted and uh, did very well. Uh, so well, they asked me to leave. Um, they didn't kick me out. They asked me to leave and offered to pay for my undergraduate to um, become a doctor come out and come back as an army surgeon. So I went down that path and uh, got through my senior year of college and I was in a car accident and my head hit the door frame of a car and in blink of an eye, I lost both my military and my medical future. Oh, man. And uh, it was probably one of the best things that ever happened to me, other than, you know, rupturing all my teeth and having root canals on all my molars and tearing my eye and my neck and everything. Um, the part of my brain I hit on the front temporal on the right side uh, is the creativity center. And uh, I damaged an area adjacent to the creativity center and it sparked creativity on me, um, uncontrollable creativity. Uh, Every single piece of blank paper I saw around me, I imagined artwork on it. And so I started to paint. And uh, six months after my head injury, I painted one of the largest murals in Colorado history. I'm from Denver, Colorado. Grew up there. And uh, it was a 40-foot by 80-foot mural featuring John Elway, Dikembe Mutombo of the Nuggets, and Andres Galarraga of the Rockies. And it became kind of a hallmark, um, career-setting a huge, huge project that uh, became the most visible artist in Colorado and uh, took me on a wild path. I started doing artwork for pro athletes and uh, created hundreds upon hundreds of pieces of art Wow! Uh, in my late 20s. Yeah, so that was the, the first big exposure I had to working with brands like the pro sports teams and working with personal brands like pro athletes um, and also just marketing yourself. How do you market yourself? And so this is the late 90s, and um, the internet was just kicking into high gear. And uh, my younger brother had just graduated with a computer science degree and was telling me about this thing called the internet. And um, I looked into it, and I I became fascinated with how web pages were displayed. 
just the code underneath making something visual. And so I taught myself to code and uh, came up with some ideas and I got my first startup funded in 2000. And uh, the first three failed spectacularly, um, but that's okay. The fourth one did all right. I created a company called Skin It, stickers for cell phones and laptops. And uh, it's still in business to this day and millions upon millions of people have ordered Skin It's for their phones. Um, and it kind of became my first big, big exit. Did you create a lot of the art for those? Um, I did it, but uh, Skin It was this, it was this, I finally learned one of the secrets to being a successful entrepreneur is don't work on, don't work on an idea unless you have a credible claim personally to be involved in it. Uh, so for example, if you're single and you don't have kids, it's probably not a good idea to make a, a, a build a company that helps parents manage their kids, for example, right? Because you don't have kids, so you have no, no credible claim to be in that. Um, but Skin It, I did have a credible claim. It was a marriage of technology and art and physical manufacturing, on-demand physical, on physical manufacturing, and uh, all areas I was interested in and passionate about, and I had a credible claim to, to do it. And uh, it took off like a hockey stick. And on November 11th, um, 2004, we launched and profitable from day one, crashed our web servers with orders the very first day, um, took us three months to catch up. Uh, and uh, to this day, thousands upon thousands of orders happen every single day. So, so is it your fault that everybody puts stickers on their laptops now? Yes. Before me, if you go all the way back to 2004, uh, it was funny. Uh, 2004 was like this pivotal time because all these consumer electronics, even idea that, that the popular phones out was the uh, Palm Pilot. Yeah. Um, Palm Pilot PDAs, BlackBerry phones, uh, XM radio had just launched. So the little portable yeah. XM radio thing, um, Compaq was still in I, business. I created mobile apps for some of those things you just mentioned. So. You know, my, been, company right before, <laughs> my company right before Skin It was called InReach, and I was in the mobile content business. Um, and I sold InReach to a, a public company uh, that eventually went under. But uh, I was doing the same thing, ringtones, graphics, and games, um, apps for those devices. And I just saw this perfect Well, um, Go ahead. I, I guess I'm going to have to say, I'm going to have to speak for a lot of IT people out there because I've been this guy that – you know, an employee leaves and they turn their laptop and it's full of stickers on the back and I got to clean that crap off. I'm blaming you for that. <laughs> you know what I do now is every time I just, I, I just got a new MacBook and uh, I buy a plastic shell and I stick it on the back and then I put yeah, my stickers on top. There of you go. Uh, but what's well, funny awesome. is, yeah, because I, I, I figure I'm going to if someone else is going to get a hand-me-down uh, somewhere in the next couple of years and I, not everyone has the same personalization. Oh, yeah. I, but the nice thing about Skin It, um, I pioneered, I worked really hard with 3M and uh, we had that vinyl. We still have the vinyl. The skin still has the vinyl. Um, gray-backed adhesive, it peels clean. There's no residue when you peel it off. Uh, it's high-end uh, and it was just, man, that company was a blast to build. And the things we were working on were the first of its kind, like being able to upload a photo and position it on top of um, a product and then mm -hmm. end up getting that exact design custom yeah. cut and shipped to you. There was no SaaS platforms for that. There was no um, e-commerce code I could buy to, to, to enable that. There was no plugins for that. So that was all custom coded stuff back in the day. And uh, it was a fascinating company to build though. It was just this marriage of 
personalization, the trend of personalization, um, and technology. And our clientele skewed heavily women. Because if you think about it, most consume electronics by their very nature are more masculine. They come in silver, black. Uh, they come in very masculine, traditional colors. And um, most of our clientele was women. So we, we allowed, for the first time, women to express an electronic accessory and personalize it to them. Uh, and so that was always fascinating. Most of the media we got was in um, feminine-oriented um, media. And uh, I knew I was onto something because my mom got excited and my wife at the time was excited. It, it seemed women were more excited about skin at the start. Um, and that that changed heavily when we got into licensing and we started licensing a ton of brands. To this day, skin is one of the largest licensees, heavy pro sports. Um, okay. All of Disney, uh, Marvel, I mean, the whole cachet. And then you can move and grab that artwork and pick your device and get this custom cut uh, sticker to make it as unique as you. And so, that hadn't been done before. I mean, so it, it, was, it, was, it was weird working with the licenses because uh, we kept, they kept on saying, send us a sample of your lot. And we're like, well, we don't have lots. We don't buy in lots. We make each one at the time of, of order. Uh, we have rolls of vinyl that are white. I can send you that, or I can print out some skins <laughs> and send them to you. Um, and so that was always a, one of the challenges, getting them to start thinking about on-demand manufacturing. So, so tell me about, you know, your career as you, as you, you know, went, went past skin it. Yeah. So I did skin it, um, uh, sold it, uh, to a, uh, actually one of our licensing companies bought it, Paul Bus um, in San Diego bought it and, uh, would spend some time in San Diego, fell in love with it. And that's where I live now, uh, out in San Diego. Uh, so I leave skin it and I decided to do skin it for cars. So I created a company called original wraps. Um, which was basically taking the same business model as Skin It, but doing it for large car companies. And so I partnered with just about every large com car company in the world. Uh, my older brother and I, um, he led the company and I kind of helped on the biz dev stuff. And uh, we got between a uh, billion dollars of revenue between the, between the car companies and the small little company called 3M. And so um, suddenly out of the blue, car companies were signing personalization deals to power um, wraps for cars uh, directly and rolling it into the financing of the vehicle. And uh, 3M ended up buying original wraps. Uh, so my so older you, brother navigated that exit. So were you guys focused on actually doing the wraps or making the materials and then selling it to all these other people that did the wraps? Uh, the two big areas we focused was the technology platform. So uh, we had a, a seamless engine that I built at Skinit. So most of Skinit's revenue came from third parties. So we had powered like Disney skins or T-Mobile skins. Um, we did the same thing with the car companies. So when you were on uh, VW's website and suddenly you saw an advertisement on there that you can personalize your VW, uh, they ended up on a piece of code that okay. we powered and ran. Okay. And then we had all the licenses and designs and uh, we did it both B2B and B2C. So uh, B2C with a consumer that can get pinstripes for their, your, their car. But the B2B one was really interesting because if you are a painter and you buy a cargo van from Ford, right? Yeah, uh, you can get this it wrapped directly from Ford and yeah. roll it into your financing. Yeah, Mike painting or whatever. Like we've all seen those before. Absolutely. Yeah. 
Yeah, so we worked on um, that for quite some time. Uh, and around a year or two into that, um, my hands started to shake one day. And uh, didn't really notice, uh, it, just thought I was tired. Uh, but it progressed to twitches all over my body, and then the pain started, and uh, I got really sick. And so I bowed out of original apps, turned it over to my older brother to run and monetize. And I spent uh, the next six months of my life trying to figure out what was what was wrong with me. Um, and long story short, at the end of that six months, doctor said high probability of either Parkinson's or MS, which is something when you're um, in your late thirties, you don't want to hear. Yeah. Uh, and so they gave me this advice. Um, I remember that doctor's visit to this day. Um, if there's anything physical you want to do with your life, now is the time to do it. And so the very next morning I woke up and I have different code that, be, that aggregates a ton of content. So kind of a feed reader of sorts. And the very first story in my feed reader um, that I used was a review of uh, Paulo Colo's The Alchemist. And um, in that, that story, there's this quote, what would you do with your life if you were not afraid? And it was just vividly displayed on my screen. What would you do with your life if you're not afraid? Because I just spent the previous six months chasing down my fear, trying to figure out why I was physically sick. And it was just fear after fear after fear, MRIs, CAT scans, all these, all these awful things. Um, and I decided in that moment sitting there that I was going to pick the hardest thing I could imagine to do physically. And I was going to go and achieve it. And so I realized I couldn't climb Everest. Um, I have no background in that, no credible claim to climb Everest, right? So I, I, I couldn't, I didn't feel comfortable being on a bike. So I wasn't going to cycle across America. And I figured I could walk. And if I can walk, I could probably run and figure I used to run in the military. And so I Googled the hardest foot race on the planet. And the very first result was a, a race that's run in the Atacama called the Atacama Crossing. The Atacama is a desert in northern Chile. It's a high desert, uh, so it's around uh, a mile high, so it's similar in elevation to Denver. And uh, it's the driest place on Earth, 400 times drier than anywhere else. It's just immensely dry. It hasn't rained for 400 years. Oh, wow. And uh, it's just brutal. And it's a salt desert. It used to be the ocean floor, and it got pushed up when the Andes were formed. So it's layered in salt everywhere. Beautiful, beautiful place. And uh, I'm reading about this amazing race. It's 156 miles, 250 kilometers, self-supported. You have to you spend basically a week in the desert with a pack, with everything you need to survive, a week traveling 156 miles. Uh, if you ask for a Band-Aid, you're out. So uh, everything has to be in your pack. The only thing they'll give you on the course is water. And um, people die doing this race or these type of races. And I was just fascinated with it. I was just like... This is this is hard. This, this feels like building a startup. This feels this is daunting. This is utterly impossible, and I'm going to do the impossible. And so um, I saw I was running in the fall of the next year. So this is October, um, and I see it's it's running in fall of um, the next year. And so I entered it. I didn't even think twice. I entered it. Put my credit card in. Got the confirmation. And only then did I notice that I had made a big mistake. Um, the Southern Hemisphere has a different fall, spring, summer cadence than, than we do. Their fall 
is our spring. Right. And so I, I was like, oh, I only have six months to train for this race. I have to go from sedentary and sick to ultra-endurance athlete. And uh, my doctors, I called my doctors and told them what I was planning, and they all said it was stupid, and my family all said it was stupid. Everyone in my life at the time just said, you know, accept your situation. Um, don't be stupid. And uh, I went against everyone's advice, and I started training the very next day. Um, and I treated it like a startup. I was highly disciplined about my diet. I was highly disciplined about what was in my mind, my motivation, everything. And I used and I started walking every day. And uh, eventually, I got to the point where I was doing ten miles every day um, with a pack, with a race pack, with everything I was I was planning on taking to the desert. And um, one day, I decided to run a little bit, and then the next day, I ran a little bit more. And uh, six months later, um, on a plane flying down to the Atacama, a city called Kalama, in the, in the Atacama, and um, ready to do the hardest thing I could imagine ever doing. Um, and along the way, I stopped twitching, and um, the pain went away, and the shakes went away. Um, I was healing somehow, and uh, I ended up on the plane ride flying down to uh, run the hardest foot race on the planet. So how did how did the race go? Um, on the flight down, I was taking my my race pack, the big North Face bag, out of uh, the overhead. Someone bumped me from behind. The bag flipped over behind my head with my hands stuck in the handle, and I uh, rotated my shoulder and tore um, one of the one of the ligaments on that holds your clavicle to your scapula. Yeah. One of those ligaments popped off, and so um, any weight that was put on my shoulder would cause excruciating pain. So this is the day before the race. This happens. And uh, I go and see the race doc, and he presses down, and uh, he's like, okay, you're disqualified. And I was like, you don't understand. I start crying. Uh, I'm not ashamed to admit this. I was like bawling. I was like, you have no idea what I've been through to end up here today and what this means for me. Um, and I think he took some, some pity on me, and he goes, you're that tech guy, right? They, we have to submit a bio, and there's about 100 athletes that do this race. And so I had to submit a bio, and I go, yeah, I'm the tech guy. He goes, are you good with math? And I go, I'm pretty good with math. He goes, how many feet are in a mile? I go, 5280. He goes, what's your stride length? I go, probably around three feet. He goes, this is 156 miles. I was like, okay. He goes, do the math. And I was kind of crunching. He goes, how many strides are you going to take? I was like, over a quarter million. He goes, you're going to separate your shoulder 250,000 times over the next seven days. He goes, if you can, <coughs> excuse me, handle that pain, I'll let you run. And he goes, and by the way, you can't have any Advil or any Tylenol in your pack. One, when you're dehydrated, one will damage your kidneys. The other one will damage your liver. So no painkillers on this one. He goes, and if you can do that, then you can do it. And so he worked with me to rig my pack to take some of the weight off, but it transferred everything over to my other shoulder and my hips got out of alignment. And it was just a brutal, brutal seven days. And on the, the, the last big stage, it was 50 miles. Um, I almost died. Um, I got my electrolytes got out of balance. My heart started to uh, beat irregularly. And uh, I thought that was it. I thought I didn't. Part of me, I think now in reflection over the years, thought that I was kind of depressed and suicidal, I think, and wanted to go there, wanted to push myself to the brink and die. 
Um, and I almost did. Um, and it was an amazing, another amazing pivotal point in my life is when I was sitting on the floor of the Atacama watching a sunset and I saw the most glorious sunset I've ever seen in my life. It was just solid gold. All the salt crystals got the perfect reflection. It was, felt like I was sitting on a plane of gold. And it was just amazing spiritual uh, moment I had because I looked around and um, asking for help. And there was just, you spread out really far in this race. And I was down on a bowl. And as far as I could see, I couldn't see another human being. And I realized it was the most lonely I'd ever been. It was the furthest away I'd ever been from another human being in my life. And no one was going to save me. Um, and it was also the loneliest I'd ever been with myself. And uh, I saw that amazing sunset and had this kind of out-of-body experience. Um, and something clicked in my brain. Something just changed again. Um, and uh, my heart started to calm down. And um, I realized that if I could just stand up and take one little step in that moment, then that would be an achievement. If I could just face the end on my feet, that would be awesome. So I got up and I took a little step and it worked. So I hobbled a little bit more and I got a little bit further and I looked back and I could see where I was sitting in the dirt. Um, and I was like, oh, I just maybe if I just hobble the rest of the way, I can actually finish this thing in the time allotment. Uh, and I did. Uh, somehow I made it to the finish line and, uh, Ran 150, well, hobbled 156 miles and uh, achieved one of the hardest things I could ever imagine doing. That's, that's incredible. That's an incredible story. So the, so ultimately through all of that exercise and, and changes to your diet and all of that, did it ultimately have a long-term effect on your, your health issues that you had? Yeah. So we fast forward again. So I come back from the desert. Um, I decide I'm not going to do startups like the way I've been doing them. Um, I create a company called Inspire because uh, I had this, th this, this word in my head. Um, the greatest thing you could ever do is to live a life worthy of inspiring others. And so I decided to come back and inspire people and get out of my comfort zone. Um, I, I've never liked being in front of people. I never liked being on stage. I never liked being interviewed. Um, and so all those things were this new goal of mine is to get myself out there and out of my comfort zone. And I started mentoring. Uh, so I mentored um, at Founders Institute, became a director of Founders Institute, then uh, started mentoring at Techstars and was giving back heavily, was doing keynotes on stage and um, started getting sick again and went and saw a doc and the head of uh, MS, one of the top MS doctors in the world. And, uh, I, he kept on having these interns come in and run all these tests on me, same thing over and over and over all day. And then finally he comes in and he goes, I have good news and I have bad news. And he goes, shoot, pick your choice. He goes, the good news is you don't have MS. I'm like, okay, that is awesome news. He goes, the bad news is, um, something's damaged. That's causing something's damaged in your neck that's causing all this. And when I said, Oh yeah, by the way, I was in a car accident when I was 24, hit my head against the door frame. And he just kind of rolled his eyes. He goes, yeah, that's it. He goes, you probably damaged something uh, along your spine. And that's just good. That the symptoms are going to rise and fall, cascade up and down. And so uh, I realized that 
once again, this amazing moment in my life will have repercussions, both positive and negative forever. And that's one of the things I think a lot about is these moments that I've had in my life that at the start of them, they looked tragic, actually ended up amazingly awesome because I chose to make them awesome. I, ch I chose to find the, the, the silver lining. And so, so go ahead. No, go, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. So I, I, I go through uh, this amazing discovery process um, and I am advising corporations at this time um, in a, with my consulting business. Um, it, it started randomly. Um, uh, a, a head of uh, a CTO I knew asked me to come in to this large multinational and tell them about the startup stuff I was doing and why startups act the way they do and what do startup founders think and how do they go through uh, their ideation process and how do they build things and just asking me a thousand questions about startups. Um, and it was just this, once again, stepping back into the corporate realm. So when I was at Skin and Original Apps, I partnered with every license, every large company you can imagine, every carrier, hardware manufacturers like HP Dell, I, I, all the car companies. I had worked with all these innovation teams before um, as a service provider, creating a white label technology solution that they would then slap their logo on and make available to their customers. Now it was on the other side. I was working embedded in an innovation team, looking at the startup community, trying to figure out what startups could, could help these large multinationals or whether they should just do it themselves. And uh, in doing that for a decade now, um, I've been what they call an entrepreneur in residence for hire. I step in as a consultant. I embed usually for two years, um, part-time. I'm, uh, I'm not an employee for sure. And my job is to help executives within these large companies think and act more entrepreneurial and really take into account and understand just how dangerous the startup community is to their future. Um, I think a lot of executives in these large companies just completely discount how dangerous in aggregate the startup community is to them. And so that's one of the big lessons I try to teach them is, uh, here's, a, here's a fun exercise. Usually the, the very first meeting I have, I'll do some research ahead of time. I find three startups um, that are competing against Megacorp. And uh, I'll look at the headcount on LinkedIn at these three startups. And I look at job titles. And I come up with a number of how many people within those three startups are solely focused on innovating for that startup. No other role, right? So they're not um, a receptionist or um, they're not a salesperson. They're creating code and creating intellectual property. <clears throat> then I go in and I meet with a, a group of senior executives and I say, these three startups have this many people. How many people do you and Megacorp have solely focused on creating innovation, creating intellectual property, whether it's patents, new products, new things? And they're just shocked to find that there's more innovators within three startups than a $6 billion entity has yeah. around the globe. And then I told them, this is just three startups. You're in what, 10 different markets around the globe? And you have thousands of startups that are eating away at your margins every single day, and you're not taking it serious. And go ahead. 
Well, so I was going to say, you know, I, the, the first company I had, I, I started in 2003 and I sold it in 2011. It was a CRM system for car dealers. And to this day, it's the number one product in the whole industry. It hasn't changed in 10 years either. And, and it, I think it's the same effect, right? Like people acquire these things or they build these things and then they become operators of it and they become expert operators of it. But the innovation part of it slowly dies away. And so, you know, love to hear your opinion on why do you think that is? You think it's just the, the, the talent that did that left, the people with the product vision left, nobody wants to take any risk. Like we're, they're too big to change. Like nobody has the willpower to, to cause all the change that has to ripple through if something has to be changed. Like what, what, what are the things that drive that? Um, what I've found is there's two personas uh, that I look at in people. So everyone I kind of put in one or two buckets. You're, a, you're either an innovator or you're an operator. And so what I mean by that is, and I'm not disparaging one or the other, but innovators, uh, the analogy I use, innovators build race cars. You know, they design tires. They, they live in this abstract world of science and molding it into technology and making it into a tangible, consumable thing. Right? So they build the race car. But then you have operators, the people who drive the race car and the pit crew that services the race car. Two different, two different valuable things, but they both need each other. So a great race car driver can squeak out amazing performance from a, a well-designed and well-engineered race car. Right? So you need them both. The problem is most companies prioritize the operator roles because it's easier to track. It's easier to to create KPIs. It's, it's easier to understand. And so the typical operator I always use is an MBA, Master's of Business Administration. It's in the title, Master's of Business Administration. Administration is the same as operation. So most MBAs are trained to be great race car drivers. They're really good at operating that machine. And they'll squeak out every ounce of performance from it. They'll find efficiencies. And they do just very bright and talented individuals. The problem comes when that machine is no longer competitive. Right. Yep. That somebody else creates a better machine. Um, it is, there is a lot more operators in the world than innovators now, which is just fascinating to me. Um, and so companies predominantly have a psychological deficiency. So my background is in psychology. So I, I always think of this from a psychological problem. <clears throat> if you're an executive in business, chief level, let's just say, you rose to that usually through an MBA program. You, you, you probably went and got an MBA somewhere along the way. The majority of executives in, in, in the corporations around the world have a business administration background. And there's this blind, there's this, this bias that people have where they think the best person to solve a problem is someone similar to themselves. And so they keep on bringing in administrators or operators on to create innovation and nothing against anyone that has an MBA, but I've met very few people who've gone through that type of program that can have the free association creativity needed to create the next next. Um, they, they constantly want to look at the data. They constantly want to look at facts. They constantly want to use Excel to innovate. And unfortunately, Innovative ideas don't have facts yet. You have to go and create it and get first-party data 
And your innovation itself should be the first data that's ever, ever created around that idea. So let me, so let me ask you this. So, you know, I'm, I'm definitely an innovator. I'm not an operator. The last thing I want to do is drive the race car around in circles. That's boring. I, I want to build the race car. So do you, do you think part of the problem is the innovators just also can't survive in this corporate world? I mean, do you think that flushes them out ultimately as well? Or, you know, why, why, you know, is, is there something to that too? Most definitely. I mean, look at Elon Musk. He's a great innovator. I would argue probably not that good of an operator. Um, he's talented. He has very smart people around him, but he's always stepping on people's toes. He can't operate a business like most people would expect you to operate a, a, a large multinational like he's built with multiple, multiple of his companies. And so I, I just think it's a natural resonance. And what I found, um, and part of it's in, in, in my latest book, which is there's these 20 traits that we have um, that I've identified that innovators have. And our personality traits are things that are built on top of, um, I won't bore you with all this, but it, it's built up from uh, experiences and other things. But there's these 20 traits, like, for example, curiosity is one of the traits. So curiosity to an innovator is a very powerful tool. If your personality, if you're naturally curious and want to go explore and see things and just understand and learn new things, it, it unlocks innovations eventually. Now, if you're an operator, curiosity is a tax, right? So curiosity is inefficient. Curiosity is expensive. Curiosity creates fear, uncertainty, and doubts. So curiosity is not a good personality trait on the operation side. So unfortunately, when you have these companies that are led by predominantly operators, they suppress actual traits that they want their employees to have that spark creativity. Another one is fierceness. People ask me, what is the number one trait people need to have uh, to be a successful entrepreneur? Or what's the number one trait or the number one trait, number one difference between entrepreneurs or startup founders in innovation, corporate innovation? And it's fierceness, hands down, it's fierceness. And the definition of fierceness is a powerful and heartfelt intensity. Now, in a startup, there is a lot of fierceness going on. There's a lot of intensity. There's, and it's a lot of heartfelt. There's just a lot more emotion in startups, in the entrepreneur community uh, as a whole, versus corporate. If you go into corporations, they hire Spocks. You go into a startup incubator, and it's filled with Kirks. Um, and so there's just a lot more passion, a lot more uh, of the raw ingredients of where creativity comes from. And in the corporate environment, there's just a lot more logic, um, a lot more operation mindset. And the cool and calculated operator is what we uh, epitomize when we talk about success. And in the startup community, we're always, uh, as any of the uh, recent uh, startup stories that we've seen in, in media uh, play out, there's always these impassioned crazily broken founders that create these amazing businesses. Uh, and, and I think that's what's really interesting about the two is most large companies do not allow their employees to think and act entrepreneurially because they don't want them to have the personality traits of the innovator. So, so as you've worked with these big companies to be more entrepreneurial, how have you fix that? You know, what, what do you do to get them to think differently or act differently? 
Yeah, so the first thing I, I do is uh, I usually, they unload their secrets to me, all their new innovations they're working on. And I'll sit in these meetings and every single meeting, every single time, some operator will raise their hand and talk or some executive will say, well, I think we ought to risk mitigate this further. And that's always my cue. And I stand up because I usually am anointed by the CEO to interrupt because I'm trying to bring the startup viewpoint or the entrepreneurial viewpoint into these meetings. And I was like, risk, that's a fascinating word, risk. The human emotion we feel when there's risk is fear. So let's reframe that instead of doing risk mitigation, let's call it what it truly is, which is fear mitigation. What are we afraid of? What are you personally afraid of? Why do you want us to go out and do more research and collect more data or hire Accenture to run some big report and give us some some artificially inflated uh, data, what are you afraid of? And then that changes. They start to think differently because I'm forcing them to be emotional instead of logical. It's really easy to say, let's do risk mitigation, but it's really hard to ask those same people to do fear mitigation work. And so what I do is I challenge people's assumptions and and start to break down some of the barriers they have um, that prevent them from being more creative. I mean, so ultimately, are they able to get their existing management teams and employees to, to do this new innovative work? Or do you also suggest that they create like new teams and new divisions to go do new things? Or how do you, yeah, how do you so suggest if, they do that? If the operational mindset, if their culture really is, I call it a Spock culture from Star Trek, if it truly is logical, and that's really how their culture operates then they need to have a different set of rules for their innovators. So one, they need to hire more innovators. Um, Here's a a funny story. I was at this big company um, embedded and uh, they were hiring a chief innovation officer. And uh, they asked me and I was like, if I would apply and I was like, no, Uh, but I was interesting. So I went and looked at the, the, uh, the actual job posting and I didn't qualify. So the actual job posting, they came up, I wouldn't qualify for it because they required an MBA for the head of innovation. And so when I look (laughs) at these organizations, I I was like, it goes all the way down to that level. Yeah. your, Your HR department is hiring the wrong people. I was like, I have, I built 20 tech startups. I have a 40 some percent, uh, success rate, um, my technology, I have a whole list of accomplishments and things I've done in my startup community. I was like, and I talked to the head of HR. I was like, how do you value this? She goes, well, and I look at your resume and it shows that you're constantly switching jobs. (laughs) (laughs) I was like, that's because I kill my startups quicker. And she goes, yeah, but it just doesn't look good on your resume. And I was like, so you're self-selecting away from people who are curious Mm-hmm. And trying new things and experimenting and failing and learning. Um, you want people who are more what, reliable or more, I mean, what is it you're looking for? And what they come back every single time. It's this list that describes an operator and not an innovator. They don't want people like you. They don't want yeah. people like me. And that's exactly what these large companies need. <laughs> you, you'll appreciate this. I always say when I, I go to hire software developers, like if they come in and they're, they interview and they're wearing a suit and tie and, and all this stuff and they're all super professional, I'm like, this, this is not the person. 
But if they come in and they are like super weird, they came in dressed like a Jedi Knight, whatever, I'd be like, you're hired on the spot. Like, you're this is the right person. Because exactly. usually the weirder they are, the better they are, I'm telling you. I, I'm i lucky. I, I was EIR at Molson Coors, right? So uh, this is when I lived in Colorado. I grew up in Golden and lived in Golden. Uh, so being part of Molson Coors was just, I mean, I grew up in Coors was iconic throughout my whole childhood. Um, so the, the chance to be an entrepreneur in residence in Molson Coors was just too good to pass up. And uh, they had a skyscraper downtown and top floors of the skyscraper. And uh, that's the head of innovation was in the skyscraper. And his name's Scott Cooper. And so he was my counterpart. He, he was kind of responsible, global head of innovation. And um, I would show up to meetings in jeans and a hoodie and a T-shirt every single time. And no one else dressed that way. Nope. And once someone asked me, it's like, why don't you dress to match a client? I was like, I dress this way on purpose. Like, why do you dress this way on purpose? I go, one, it's comfortable and I like it. But two, I'm an innovator. And by my very nature, I'm going to dress differently than your operators to identify me as separate. Right? So I am part of the creative class. I'm not part of the operational class. I need to fit in with my peers. I usually would leave there and go mentor at a startup program in Denver. And I was like, if I show up to the startup community to mentor at, say, Founders Institute, Techstars, pick any of them, um, in a suit and tie, no one will take me serious. They'll think I'm selling them something. They'll think uh, I'm, I'm, I have no expertise. But if I show up in a hoodie and a T-shirt... And I have to rely on my experience and my proven track record to be able to articulate better. People are just more receptive to creative people who dress a certain way than the operator side. And uh, it's funny because that's part of our personalities though, right? So how I dress, how I think, how I evaluate, um, these are all things that uh, I try to teach these corporate executives to open up a little bit more. Um, Stop being so spockish. Be a little more passionate like Kirk. Um, and over time, you start to see again and again and again, they start to see with my involvement, that my way is probably the better way. Um, that continuing to operate based upon logic and data only, by its very nature, means that you're missing out on creating the next next, whatever that's going to be. You will always be behind, and usually in a company because of just the process, so many people involved in the number of meetings, that usually means six months to a year to two years behind what's happening in other parts of the industry. And that makes them very, very nervous. Um, well, I, I really appreciate uh, you you confirming my, uh, my myth about hiring. <laughs> <laughs> you're, you're spot on. I mean, creative people are naturally... If they have a personality that will allow them to dress a certain way, even to a meeting, I mean, think about it. An interview is kind of a, a, a big first impression thing. But if they're open enough to express their creativity, what are they going to do in a code review? Sure. Yeah, I and, like it. Yeah. So. Well, I've, I've really uh, appreciated our, our episode today, and this has been awesome. Um, I know you are also an author. I want to make sure you um, tell everybody about your, your book as well. Yeah, so I have two. I have the, the one that came out in November is called Innovating Innovation, uh, Why Corporate Innovation Struggles in the Age of the Entrepreneur. Um, 
so that's the the current book. Um, it really is geared. Uh, startups are tending to like it because it just validates why people become a founder to begin with. Um, but it, uh, the corporate innovation crowd, I think, is getting a lot of value from it as well. It was a bestseller, um, so I'm really proud of that book. And then I have another one coming out in two months. Um, so it's January right now. So it'll probably be out in March, April timeframe. Um, and it's called Million Dollar Ideator, uh, the surprisingly simple way to, cre- to quickly create profitable ideas. So it's more of the workshop that I do with corporate or when I mentor at a startup, the process I go to come up with to create these uh, million dollar ideas or ideas that have value. And so that book will be out in a couple months. Awesome. Well, as we wrap up the episode today, I do want to remind everybody, if you need to hire software developers, testers, or leaders, full skill can help. We have the platform and the people to help you build and manage a team of experts. When you visit fullscale.io, all you need to do is answer a few questions and then let our platform match you up with our fully vetted, highly experienced team. At Fullscale, we specialize in building long-term teams that work only for you. You can learn more at fullscale.io. So I really enjoyed this episode and I really enjoyed your 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 story of, about your adversity and, and how you've overcome that. And I'm curious if you have any any other final you know tips, thoughts, words of wisdom for other entrepreneurs listening today. I think going into this economic season um, that we are, there's just a lot of fear. And uh, I have the saying that scarcity breeds creativity. The more scarce uh, money is, more scarce time is, more scarce talent is, it unlocks something unique in the human experience where we just come up with new connections uh, in scarcity. So uh, uh, abundance breeds decadence, and we've gone through a decade of that. So I'm excited about this next phase, and I think the age of the entrepreneur is going to continue. Uh, We might be in for a rough ride economically, but now is the best time I've ever seen to work on an amazingly new idea. Uh, The world needs great innovators. Well, and as you mentioned earlier, it's, you know, like using my company as an example that I had sold hasn't changed much in 10 years somebody's going to come by and disrupt them. <laughs> yes. And another entrepreneur will come by and see the opportunity, right? So it's like every every, you know, 10 years whatever, these things continue to turn. So And 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 I love that word dis, disrupt um because one of the exercises I do with corporate clients is uh what is the definition of innovation? And for me, that my definition that I came up with is the human response to evolution. So things are constantly changing, evolving. Um, and if you don't respond to every evolution, then you are building up a dam of a, ignorance to the evolutions that are happening. And when you get to a certain point, that's disruption. When you ignore evolution long enough, it will disrupt you or someone will disrupt you because someone was paying attention to the evolutions that were happening. I think that's that's absolutely great. And uh, that definitely happens with you know things like mobile or cloud and internet and all these different waves of things that happen that if you totally ignore them, they, they definitely will, will catch you off guard. That's for sure. Well, yeah, thank sure. you. Thank you so much for being on the show. Again, this was Mike Stemple. Um, can definitely find you on LinkedIn, find your books. Um, I even go, I Googled your art. Um, I'm, I'm a little sad that you're a John Elway fan. I mean, I, I'm a, I'm a Kansas city guy, so well, I've got we, Kansas City stuff, yeah. We, we, I don't remember we, who. I'd have to look at the, the, the database, but so so go Chiefs. But um and your website is inspire.com and uh, yeah, or you or you can go to mikestemple.com and it links out to everything. All right. Articles and everything. All right. Well, thanks again. Thank you for being on the show. 
Yeah, thanks for having me. I enjoyed our conversation. Startup Hustles brought to you by Fullscale.io, helping you build a software team quickly and affordably. Make sure you reach down and hit that subscribe button, then come find us on Instagram. See you next time. We do it.